we're deep into a teaching series um, that we've been in a few weeks now uh, on my teaching weeks, and we're just calling this Emotionally Healthy. This series is really about becoming an emotionally healthy church made up of emotionally healthy people. And we said that one of the reasons this is important and one of the reasons we believe we should be talking about this and we should be learning about this is because Jesus was an emotional being and Jesus was emotionally healthy. So then part of the process of becoming more like Jesus is to become more and more emotionally mature and emotionally healthy. We started this series a few weeks ago asking the question, what if our emotions are places to meet with God? What if God is already there waiting for us? So far, we've looked at the example of Jesus' emotional health. We've talked about his spiritual practices, the importance of things like silence and solitude and prayer. We've talked about family of origin, and uh, that was a whole lot of fun that week, and uh, trying to just not like look at anybody in the room, and... Uh, because there's a whole lot of fun for me, because I have family of origin this way and this way in this church, so it was not awkward at all. Um, but we talked about family of origin. We talked about breaking free from the power of the past. Um, we've talked about identity and calling and accepting the gift of our God-given limitations, because uh, we discovered that most of the time we're trying to push through our limitations, when the fact of the matter is limitations are, are a gift from our Heavenly Father. Like, this is, this is it for us. Like, don't just, la- just sit in this and accept it. And then a couple weeks ago, we talked about pace of life. We talked about hurry sickness. I'm, I'm curious to know how you've done on that in the last couple weeks, because I've been really working at it. And uh, some days or strings of days have been better than others. Um, but on all this stuff, I feel like we're just getting started in this conversation. I'm not even sure. Uh, we've already gone further than I thought we'd go in this series, so I'm not sure how far we're going to go. We're just going to keep exploring it topic by topic, and I'm going to ask for your input here in a little while to see where maybe you'd like to go next. My prayer for all of us in this series is, um, you know, for all of us as individuals, for all of us as couples, for all of us as families and households, for us as a church, is that God would bring us to a place of emotional maturity and emotional health as followers of Jesus. My text today is in Matthew chapter 6. I want to read a few verses to get us started this morning. Matthew chapter 6, this is in the middle of a big uh, collection of thoughts, and these are the words of Jesus. He says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let's pray before we go any further. Heavenly Father, we ask you for um, clarity of thought for an uncluttered mind, for a chance here to just take a breath and to settle in and to hear what your Holy Spirit has for us. Speak clearly through your word. I pray that this would be a time of challenge and encouragement for each person in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, This morning I want to take some time to work through uh, what Jesus has to say, kind of line by line in Matthew chapter 6. So let's get started. Verse 1. Be careful. Let's stop. It's going to take a while, right? I'm going to do two words at a time. Because right off the bat, this is like a warning. This is a warning kind of teaching. It's like sit up, pay attention, be careful. Okay, be careful. Be careful of what? 
Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. All right, so the word that we translate righteousness in the Greek is the word dikaiosune. Can you say that with me? Dikaiosune. Yeah, you can say it. Say, well, actually, let's put it, it might be helpful, Josh, to put that right up on the screen in the Greek because I know you're waiting to see how it's So dikaiosune uh, or something like that. I can just say it, and you think, yeah, that's how you say it. I, what do I know? I look it up on Wikipedia like you would. Uh, but the Kayasune, there's actually a ton of debate, and the reason I stopped here is because there's a ton of debate um, and controversy in the academic world about this word. And as I got digging into this, like, what's Jesus mean here by practice your acts of righteousness? Um, boy, there's lots of uh, different takeaway on this. But here's the thing. Most scholars agree that it has to do with right relationships, that we can just start there. That the word that, that is used here for righteousness has to do with right relationships. And it starts with, so when we read the word righteousness, it starts with relationship with God first and foremost. But that's one dimension out of two or three because there's also right relationships with other people. Jesus talked extensively about that. Right relationship with your spouse if you have one, with your circle of friends if you have any, with your family of origin, your mom, your dad, your siblings. Oh, happy Mother's Day, by the way. Happy Mother's Day. Um, there, just kind of... Um, <laughs> There, Oof, that is Hallmark, yes. Yeah. But then also, and this is one we tend, to, we tend to skip right over when we read this teaching of Jesus, is a right relationship with the needy. That's the language of Jesus. So those are the, the, those in the margins of society. And that's a, a, a reason a number of scholars just translate it good works because they aren't sure what to do with this, the needy, you're giving to the needy and the idea of righteousness and how does this all connect? So let's go back and read this again. Be careful not to practice all of your good works in front of others to be seen by them. See what I just did there? We just changed that word and it didn't change the meaning of it. Just made it clearer for us. Because when you read the word righteousness, I don't know how often you've used the word righteousness in the last seven days in your conversations, right? But good works is something we can get our head around. And then look at the next line. Don't do it in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So what's Jesus saying here? First, let's start with this. He's not saying, he's not saying don't do good works, right? Obviously, is that obvious? Um, a line later, it's like when you give to the needy. So it's not if, and we're going to get there in a minute. Jesus just assumes that his listeners, his audience, his apprentices, his disciples will go out and do good works. And for Jesus, good works are exactly that. They are good. And I say that because some of, like some of you didn't grow up in church. Um, so that's neither here nor there. But some of us did. And uh, we've had a lot of uh, re- and deprogramming and reprogramming to do because of maybe some church experiences. I don't know if you've ever been there. Um, but if you grew up or spent any time, um, like I did in a, in a sh- short window of time in my life, in a church tradition, where there's this vein in the Western church kind of, Western post-Reformation church um, that's a bit, in my opinion, a bit of an overreaction to the 16th century um, Catholicism, which, places, which placed all the emphasis on good works. That was one of the things that sparked the Protestant Reformation in the early 16th century. You're like, I'm not even sure what you're talking about. Well, if you're in this church today, then you're probably not a practicing Catholic, which would make you a Protestant, okay? Um, if you're a so that's kind of the two major branches of, of Christianity. Somewhere along the way in the Protestant church, good works became like a bad thing. Now let me explain what I mean by that. And maybe you're like, yeah, I know what you mean. 
because you, you maybe had some church experience where that, that was kind of the, where the emphasis was placed. If you've ever been in a church environment where when you hear people talk about good works in, in church, it's kind of treated like a dirty word, like let's not put a lot of emphasis on that. So like be careful putting emphasis on good works, which was an overreaction to Catholicism pre-Reformation. And actually Jesus commands us to do good works, right? Um, the Apostle Paul commands us to do good works. Um, most of the other New Testament writers, for instance, James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, um, which James is one of my favorite books in the New Testament, so easy to apply and to relate to. He makes a point that if you don't good work, do good works, like the odds are something is seriously off in your faith. He said faith without works is dead. So yes, good works are th- something to be embraced. And Jesus just assumes, well, of course, if you follow me, then just the, the natural byproduct out of your apprenticeship, a natural result of your following me is going to be to do good works. So just to clarify, if you grew up in a church tradition that, prevented, that presented this confusing message because we didn't want to, pr- want to tie in salvation with good works, so we won't talk about good works so that you make sure your salvation's all about faith, sometimes to the neglecting of doing good works. He's not saying, hey, be careful, don't do good works because you might get caught up in thinking that's how you come to me. He's not saying if you do good works, hide them, keep it secret. That's not what he's saying. Because a lot of people read, you know, uh, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, and then they put a period there. They stop right there, and then they, they cut out the end of the sentence, which says, in order to be seen by them. Because see, that goes to the motive. That's what Jesus was always driving to. He was always driving to the heart issue. This is just one part, chapter 6 of Matthew, is one part of a much larger uh, sermon. It, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 is a Sermon on the Mount. So imagine you're sitting there on a hillside hearing all of this in one sitting. So imagine you're, you've been listening, and now you just rewind a little bit into chapter 5, and here's what Jesus said, quote, in chapter 5, verse 16. He said, let your light shine, where? Before others, right? He said, let your light shine before others. Why? So they see your good works. For what purpose? To glorify your Father in heaven. The key line there is glorify your Father in heaven, not glorify you. That's the litmus test. So if you're thinking, well, do I tell people about this thing I'm doing? I mean, if I'm, I'm doing it for Jesus, I'm serving in the church like, you know, this morning, do I post it on Facebook? Like, how do I know, public or private? Tell people or keep it a secret. I'm on this mission trip. It's amazing. Shouldn't I be posting 12 pictures a day of me with some little kids? Listen, the litmus test is does this bring glory to God? That's the litmus test. Is this about elevating myself or is this about elevating my heavenly father? There are times, listen, when what you're doing, it is absolutely fitting to broadcast it to the world. Like we do Relay for Life because we believe in that cause. We, we have a personal connection to it, most of us. We also do it to be very visible in our community. So there's a time when it's perfectly fine to broadcast what you're doing. As long as it brings glory to God. And maybe, because maybe it will provide a motivation for other people to join in. Because, hey, if you can serve in that way, maybe I can serve too. So Jesus is not saying, hide all of your good works. What he's saying is, when you do good works, do them. Don't do them to show off. And don't do them to look good in front of others. So the key line in this teaching is to be seen by them. This phrase can also be translated in order to be noticed by them. 
In Greek, it comes from the same word where we get the word theater. Uh, and literally, it's to put on a show. So Jesus is dealing with our motivation. So, and, and here's the deal. Of course, Jesus is interested in behavior. I hear people say on a regular basis, you know, the gospel isn't about behavior modification. <clears throat> and in context, I've probably used those words too, but with all due respect, I wonder when we place no emphasis on behavior modification, what gospel are we reading? I mean, are you reading a different Bible? Now, granted, listen, a lot of times in the church, we get the cart before the horse when it comes to behavior modification. We start with behavior modification. And that's where we go wrong. Jesus, however, goes behind the behavior and gets to the motivation. We tend to jump right to, you need to change this about yourself, you need to change that, and change the way you do that, and change the way you speak about that, and change the way you treat them. Let's back up. I'm convinced that Jesus really does care about my behavior. And he wants to modify that, like, a lot. <laughs> but I think he wants to radically change me and transform me and reteach me a whole new way to be human. But having said that, Jesus... I think from his perspective, I think for Jesus, right behavior isn't enough. We need the right heart posture. We need the right motivation behind the behavior. And all forms of religion or spirituality, and even in the way of Jesus, there's a temptation that we all face to do the right things for all kinds of ulterior motivation. Right? They can be goofy or weird or just plain narcissistic. For example, I'm up here teaching about the way of Jesus. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Don't answer that out loud, please. I think, I think it's a great thing. But you have no idea why I'm up here. You don't know my motivation. You can't see that. You can guess at it, depending on maybe how cynical you are. Or... Or you can maybe even get, get, get close to it based on a comment here or a comment there or if you actually know me well. But you don't actually have insight past my skin, past what I present to you, past my words, past the actions you observe from me. You don't, beyond that, you don't get much of a peek into my heart posture, my motivation. I could be up here because I love Jesus like nobody's business. And I want to serve Jesus with my life. And I, I feel like this is what I was made to do. And I love you so much, most of you. And I want to serve you. <laughs> I want to serve you. And, and I want to work hard at being a leader worth following for the sake of this group of Jesus followers and for the sake of biblical community and for the sake of the community we live in and for the sake of the kingdom of God in this community. I could be up here for that reason in theory. Or I could be up here because like, this is my job. Somewhere along the line, someone decided to pay me to do this, and so like, I have a mortgage, and I have bills, and I have to put food on the table, and I'd like to go on a vacation every once in a while. Or maybe I'm up here because I want more followers on Facebook, and I need to develop a following because I'm creating a brand because I plan to write some really great books. I could be up here so that I could have more power, more authority to dominate and impose my will on unsuspecting sheep. None of you, of course. But I'm not being a completely hypothetical because there's some truth to this. I'm a mixed bag. It's not like my motivations are 100% pure all the time. 
I'm up here for some really good reasons, and in all honesty, sometimes I'm up here for some not so great reasons. So don't judge me. Stop it. I just bore, bore my soul to you. Now it's your turn. No. <laughs> How many of you will go to work tomorrow at your same boring, predictable job? And you wake up, and you do your thing, and you get there on time, and the only thought in your mind is, I'm here to contribute to human flourishing. I'm here for the sake of the human race. I'm here to contribute to the betterment of humanity. Come on, it's Monday morning, get real. <laughs> there are moments you're like that. It doesn't matter what your job is, right? Because we all deal with people in our workplace, even if we deal with mostly coworkers. So there are moments when you have that. You're like, yes, I'm here for the sake of these people. Most moments are like, another freaking email? I've told this person 12 times. You know, another meeting? Seriously, why am I here? So the question we have to ask ourselves on a regular basis, that I need to ask myself on a regular basis is, why am I doing this good thing? Whether it's teaching the way of Jesus at the podium on Sunday, or serving on the parking team, or the host teams, or leading or serving in kids' environments, which, by the way, these people rock. They should see what they're doing today. It's just like, there were at least, there were at least 190 kids lined up over there today, I swear. Uh, <laughs> or you're serving in the tech room and we change something on you every week, or you're on stage for our services, for, or anything good, right? Or, or if, it's, if it's your work in a service industry, or caring for patients, or caring for clients, or providing a service for a customer, or bringing an honest day's work to honor your employer, whatever it is, why? What's my motivation? And that's what Jesus is kind of starting to deal with here in chapter six. Um, Chapter 6, verse 1 that we just read is essentially a thesis statement for the next session, section of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and he lays out three practices here. Number one is giving to the needy. Uh, number two is prayer. And number three is fasting. So here's the deal. Every time and place has its core practices, or uh, if you prefer, spiritual disciplines. Those are words, that's a word that we, or a phrase we might use, or spiritual habits. Uh, for us in America, in the 21st century church, it tends to be, the top three would be going to church, reading your Bible, and prayer, right? Those are the big three that we lean into for spiritual practices. And that's great. I believe in all that. Um, but if you think about it, in Jesus' day, there was no Bible to read at home. Now, Gutenberg was 1,500 years in the future. So you either put the Bible to memory when you were a kid, if you were smart enough, or you were just at the synagogue a lot, and you grew up hearing it read out loud, but not like in the morning with your coffee and your Bible and your notebook and your Instagram filter. That, that wasn't their experience. As far as going to the church, they would have called it synagogue. You're living in a village and maybe there's a few hundred people in your community. And the synagogue is not what we think of as church today. Synagogue was the epicenter of community life. It's your local elementary school. It's the community center. It's the worship center. It's the justice center. It's kind of the house of government of your local village. It's the welfare system. You're pretty much there every single day, all through the week. It just goes without saying. It's not because you're super devoted to your faith. It's just, it's just the way it is. So where we talk about Bible reading and prayer in the church, both attending and serving, you know, being involved, the three core practices that you um, read about, not only here from Jesus, but in a lot of rabbinic uh, literature from around the time of Jesus, are different. Those core practices are different from our core practices. They are giving to the needy, 
prayer, and fasting. Those are kind of the three practices in Jesus' faith culture, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. Now, Jesus is not giving an in-depth teaching on each practice. So I won't do that either. One of the things he's doing is he's warning his followers, his apprentices, about the dangers of religious hypocrisy. The danger of getting sucked into those, just doing those core practices, which are all great, by the way. And Jesus is all for doing them. But getting sucked into doing them in order to look good in front of other people. That's his point. We need to listen carefully to what Jesus has to say about this. So first up is giving to the needy. Let's take a look at that, verse two. Jesus goes on. So when you give to the needy, again, the phrase give to the needy is one, one word in Greek. And it, it's, a very, it's very slippery to translate it into English. But back in the day, it was translated almsgiving, A-L-M-S, giving, almsgiving. If you ever had a King James Bible or something like that, that's actually a better translation of this Greek word. Um, it's, it's not just giving money. It's kind of, and that's kind of how we read it today. Um, we think it's like giving money to the church, giving money to a charity, giving money to a nonprofit or whatever. But it's not just giving your money. It is that, but it's also giving your time, giving out of relationship, giving your life itself. It's closer to what we call social justice. And social justice was just central to ancient Hebrew spirituality. So you read the Old Testament, you can't read the Old Testament, which was the Jewish scripture in Jesus' day. You can't read it without getting pulled into the gravitational field of God's heart for people. It was so central to Hebrew spirituality that the same Hebrew word was used for both righteousness and almsgiving. So to be righteous was to give to the needy, and to give to the needy was to be righteous. Then in AD 70, after the destruction of the temple, when the Roman general Titus leveled the temple and leveled the city of Jerusalem, that was the end of Israel as we knew it for a long, long time. Um, the Israel we knew in the Old Testament was now gone. Judaism, as a practice, had to reinvent itself because they had no more temple. They had no more priesthood. There was no more sacrificial system. So you read the Torah, you read the first five books of the Bible, and you imagine trying to go out and do that with no temple, with no central place, with no priesthood, and with no sacrificial system. Um, it's most of what the Torah is all about. So Judaism had to reinvent itself. And there's neither right or wrong, neither here nor there. Um, but in that kind of revamp, Giving to the needy actually replaced the sacrificial system as a way of atonement. And don't start looking for that in your Bible because you're not going to find it in your Bible because this happened after the Bible was written. This is history. So instead of going to the temple with your goat to make atonement before God, instead of that in Judaism, because there's no more temple, there's no more priesthood, there's no more sacrificial system. If you're still practicing Judaism, you would go out and you'd give to the needy. You'd take a meal, you'd take money, You'd start a charity, you'd volunteer an hour or two, whatever, in order to atone for your sin. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, it's just, it just, that's how it played out in society. One historian wrote this, that by the first century, there's a well-organized system of relief for the poor based in the synagogue, providing something of what our modern state-sponsored welfare systems originally aimed to offer. So think about Medicare and welfare and food stamps and all the government programs that we have imagined that is non-existent at a government level in Jesus' world. All of that was run through the local synagogue. All of that was based in the local synagogue. And the only way that, way that worked is because the funding 
of that system depended on contributions from members of its community. My point is, Jesus is tapping into the high value in his society. And not only in his society, but a high value in the heart of God the Father. And Jesus is all for it. He's all for giving to the needy. It's not really what this teaching is all about. What this teaching is about is our motivation. And he just assumes, of course, that you're giving to the needy. So what he's dealing with is our motivation. And he addresses a negative or a wrong motivation, and he addresses and gives a positive or a right motivation. So let's look at each of them. Let's look at the negative one first, verse 2. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. Now, as far as we know, uh, people did not actually, uh, you know, play a trumpet as they made their donation, which I think would be pretty cool out there in the lobby by the offering box if we just put a little trumpet there. Um, but there's a, there's a clever little play on words here. Um, so this is, uh, this is like two millennia before PayPal in the Bible app on your phone with a link at the bottom of the event where it takes you right to the giving page you can give right now. What would be really cool is actually maybe we should add a sound effect on that. So if you're sitting there right now and you decide, oh yeah, I should make my donation today and you do it and then there's like trumpet plays right here in the middle of church. That'd be really cool. We all high five you. Way to go. We could probably put it right on the screen like a ticker like they do on TV shows and have a little social media feed down there. So-and-so just gave so much to faith community. That's, that's the same idea of giving, of blowing a trumpet when you give, okay? You're like, oh, who would do that? Here's how it worked. There was a giving box in each synagogue that was actually, it wasn't really a box. It was made out of a ram's horn, similar to a shofar, which was also used as a trumpet. And when you'd walk in, you would take your coin or your coins and you would throw it in the ram's horn. It would make a loud noise. And um, I don't know if you ever were in a church where they used, like, um, brass um, offering plates and those people that insisted every week of tossing the coins in so everybody heard it. And, like, mine didn't make noise because I'm giving paper. You're giving coins. Yay for you. So, um, (laughs) man, the stuff from my church, I got baggage. But it would make a loud noise and it would be like they throw the money in this, this ram's horn. And it's like this clang and clatter. And so it would kind of announce yourself as you're coming in. Like, I'm here and I gave. Like, how loud your, you kind of announce with how loud your offering was. And everybody kind of look at that and take notice. There's a clever little play on words here. And here's what he's saying. Like, when you walk into the synagogue and you give to the needy, that's great. But don't announce it to the world. You don't have to like step in the door and dig out your coins and like step back behind the three-point line and let it fly, you know, or slam dunk it, you know. You don't need to announce it to the world. He goes on. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and even on the streets to be honored by others. <laughs> this, is a, this is the first time that Jesus uses a word that later becomes a Jesusism. Did you know that? You've used the word hypocrite. Jesus was the first to use it in this context. It's tra- the word tr- hypocrite is translated uh, uh, 17 times uh, as, as spoken by Jesus. And it's almost always reserved for religious leaders in the, so in the Pharisees, and the teachers of the Torah, and maybe people like us, I don't know. In Jesus' day, it hadn't come to mean what it means to us today. All it meant was an actor. On stage, that was the meaning of the word. It was very similar to our word actor. And it was an image. And why did Jesus use this word? Well, it was an image that his, his audience could, could relate to and connect with. Because just down the road from Jesus' hometown was a Roman city of Sepphoris, where there was a gigantic theater 
um, that was built just years earlier. In fact, the Gospels say that Jesus was, in the Greek, was a tecton. It's, it, we usually hear that as carpenter. So we imagine Jesus like he's working probably a foot-pumped lathe, you know, and sawdust is flying. He's crafting like a beautiful hand-built piece of furniture. And it's just a beautiful picture. But Jesus lives in ancient Galilee. There's no forest for over 100 miles. Basically, nothing is made out of wood except for, I mean, everything's made out of black basalt rock. Pretty much the only thing in a home that was made out of wood, um, if you had enough money, would have been your front door. Um, that's even if you had enough money to build a wooden front door. Maybe a stand to put a lamp on. But everything else was basically made out of rock. So that word tecton, which it doesn't necessarily mean carpenter. I mean, it can be that, but it mostly just means construction worker. Or, or it can even be used as stonemason. So it's far more likely that, and I'm really sorry if this messes with your image of Jesus and it just bursts your bubble because you're like, I know, but what about my boss is a Jewish carpenter bumper sticker? What do I do with that? Just a magic marker, you can put... Stonemason, if you want to, just mess with people. Pretty good chance he worked more with stone than he did with wood. I say that because a lot of scholars speculate just based on when Jesus was born and where Jesus grew up, that he and his father worked as stonemasons or construction workers on the city of Sepphoris, which was being built during Jesus' childhood and adolescence and young adulthood. In particular, this theater, I have a picture of it. This is what it looks like today. Um, actually, that's a, actually, that's actually a few years ago because since that picture, they've been working at kind of restoring it and so it can be used for, for plays and so on. So that's kind of what it looks like today. Not that Jesus would have ever attended anything here. That was strictly forbidden for the Jews, but he may very well have worked on its construction. And at the very least, he was very aware of what went on there. And this was just a few miles from where Jesus grew up. So this imagery for Jesus and his listeners is very familiar. So here's the point. Jesus is just saying, hey, the religious leaders, those people you look up to, and they act like they never do anything wrong, they got it all together, they're hypocrites. They're actors. They're not the real deal. They're not what they seem. The, the idea of a of a hypocrite as a negative idea actually entered common usage through Jesus' teaching right here. He was the first one to call out religious hypocrisy. Think about that. We know that religious hypocrisy really bothers the world, right? You talk to people outside the church, one of their primary beasts with organized religion, whatever that is, they just need to come here and see how organized it is, and uh, is all the hypocrites. Hypocrites bother most of us in this room, right? Man, we just hypocrisy really bothers Jesus too because it's a death blow to the witness of the church because you can play the game and say all the words but if your life doesn't measure up you have no effectiveness in fact it has a negative impact I mean here's what's fascinating because this isn't um, even really the problem that Jesus um, seems to have with, with it here here's what he says verse 2 truly I tell you look at the end of verse 2 they've received their reward in full so Jesus is saying, if you give to the needy, or in our language, when you do social justice, or you do some act of service, either in the community, you serve in your church, because that's what the giving to the needy was in Jesus' audience. It was a spiritual practice. Whatever it is, you're just doing it for the approval of people, or for the fear of the disapproval of certain people, then fine, you'll get what you want. You'll get a pat on the back, you'll get a little clap, you'll get a comment, you'll get a like on Facebook, you are amazing, thank you, whatever, you're awesome, but that's all you get. And Jesus isn't down on doing good works for a reward, which is really interesting. 
He's just saying that if the reward you're after is applause and accolades and approval from your peers, you're setting your sights way too low because there's so much more that your heavenly father has for you. So under the positive, verse three. When you give to the needy, here's the right motivation, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So how's that even possible? Well, remember, Jesus is talking less about behavior and more about heart motivation. He's saying, to just think about it as we follow Jesus over a lifetime. The end goal is to grow and mature into the kind of people who naturally do the things that Jesus would do without even thinking about it. Again, uh, I've quoted Dallas Willard a few times in this series, but it's Dallas Willard kind of for the win on this one. This is a quote, it's like a paragraph. So this is Dallas Willard. He says, the kind of people who've been so transformed by their daily walk with God that good deeds naturally flow from their character are precisely the kind of people whose left hand would not notice what their right hand is doing. As for example, he says, when speaking one's native language, what they do, they do naturally often automatically, simply because of what they are internally. He says, these are people who do not have to invest a lot of reflection in doing good for others. Their deeds are in secret, no matter who is watching, for they are absorbed in love of God and of those around them. They hardly notice their deed and rarely remember it. I love that. There's a beautiful concept that Bonhoeffer called self-forgetfulness. It doesn't mean that we don't take joy in good works. I, mean, I think that's right and fitting to do the things that Jesus did and would do, and you get a whole lot of joy in that. You get meaning and purpose and satisfaction out of it. Um, so I don't think that's what he's saying here, but I think he's saying that our long-term goals become the kind of people who follow Jesus and are transformed and just naturally do good works. And it comes out of who you've become through following Jesus and honestly don't have to think about it anymore. When we get there, listen to what Jesus says, verse 4, then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. You see, he sees what nobody else sees. He sees what never makes it onto a stage. He sees what never makes it on Facebook. He sees what doesn't make it onto the local news. He sees what doesn't get a public thank you. He sees all of it. This is the most fascinating part of the teaching for me. Jesus is saying the right motivation, the right motivation for giving to the needy, and I think in our application, for our context, it's any good work. The right motivation is to get a reward from your Father in heaven. You're like, really? Is that the right motivation? Well, think about this. It sounds a little self-serving initially because I was taught to do the right thing because it's the right thing. You don't need a pat on the back. Just, just do, go do the right thing. I think it's interesting that Jesus didn't say, um, give to the needy because that's what God is like and you need to be like God. That's not what he said. He just says that when you give to the needy, your father will see it, even if nobody else does. And guess what? He'll reward you. Doesn't say what the reward is. So be careful not to fill in the blank. Like, oh yeah, finally I can get that new BMW. <laughs> you know, it's like, here's my check, Jesus. Here's my check to the church and the memo. I'll just put new BMW, down payment. He doesn't say what the reward is. He just says, do it. Your father will notice, even if it's in secret, especially if it's in secret. He'll see it. He'll notice. He'll reward you. So I've been thinking about this for a few weeks. Do you know we are born with a desire to be noticed? We're born with that. Think about it. 
We come into this world crying for attention, literally, right? We do. As kids grow up, they regularly say to their parents, to their mom, to their dad, to their uncle, their grandma, their grandpa, to the random stranger at the park, this one little phrase that if you're a parent, you know it well. Watch me. Watch me. Watch me, watch me, watch me, watch me, watch me do this, watch me do that, watch me do a cartwheel, watch me do a cannonball, watch me ride my bike, watch me play this video game, watch me. Seems innocent enough, but listen, our healthy desire to be noticed and rewarded by certain people in our lives can become, especially if we grow up in a family of origin that's less than healthy, because there's something about recognition from our father, it can become an unhealthy desire or become a drive to be noticed and to look good, listen, in front of other people. And that is just a hamster wheel. Because you run and you run and you run and you run, you never quite get there. You never get enough recognition. You tweet and you post and you selfie and you work and you brag and you boast and you show off and you accomplish and you accumulate and you just never get there. Is there freedom from that? Whenever you read the Bible, or the teachings of Jesus especially, you have to kind of approach it and kind of live with a foot in two worlds. So in this case of reading Matthew chapter 6, you have one foot in Jesus' world in first century Israel, and another foot in our world, 21st century North America, Western culture. So you have to do the hard work of reading the Bible in its context, in both contexts. Read it in Jesus' context and understand it and apply it in our context. So when you oscillate back and forth between the two, you realize pretty fast there are similarities and there are differences, right? So sometimes you're reading the Bible and you're like, oh, wow, that's really familiar with our world. That's similar to what I'm dealing with. Other times you read the Bible and you're like, I don't even know what that means. It has nothing to do with the world I live in. So what are the differences? Well, first of all, in Matthew 6, the differences are that Jesus is speaking to a very conservative religious culture with a high value for discipline, where spiritual disciplines in particular are just assumed. They're taught by parents to children at a very young age. So Jesus does not have to teach them to adults who are just assumed. So giving to the needy in prayer and fasting were pretty much a part of everybody's life. He's not teaching them to do it. He's teaching them how and why. So is this true of our culture? That we are a conservative religious culture with a high value for discipline? No. I think we'd all agree, right? We do not. Do we live in a religious conservative culture? No. We live, actually, in where we live, we live in one of the least churched, most biblically illiterate parts of the country. Did you know that? And uh, we live in an area with, do we live in an area with high value for discipline? I would say pro, no. So, I don't even know what that would look like. And so, um, we can't assume what Jesus assumes, that we all have discipline in our life. Or we're all practicing spiritual disciplines, like giving to the needy and prayer and fasting. We can't assume that because where many of his listeners were often doing them for the wrong reasons, oftentimes we're not doing them at all, right? So we have to be really, really careful about our interpretation or application. So that's kind of a difference. As far as similarities, well, here's just one for you, and this is what I really wanted to get to this morning as I wrap up. Just a couple more minutes. In Jesus' world, people really wanted to look good in front of others. I think I have that on the That, I, yeah, that's similar to my experience. How about you? I mean, all these people I live with, do work, do life with, they all want to be, look good to other people. 
want to look good in front of people, right? Wouldn't apply to me. Now we can relate to this. Let's be serious. Let's be honest. So let's just take... Um, I want to get everybody's attention on this, so if I don't know how, I think I'm about, about tweeting right now and maybe post something on Facebook, just get everybody's attention. Because if you're on social media right now, just look up. Because let's just take social media as an example because it's the low-hanging fruit. I'm just going to pick on it for a minute. First of all, I, I love, I have a love-hate relationship with social media, but I do love social media. I love it for a lot of its original intent. I love the fact that I can keep in touch with people that I haven't seen in 30 years. And uh, we think we're friends, but we're really just stalking each other on Facebook. And uh, we were friends once. And if we, we know that if we ever had a chance to run into each other at Starbucks, we'd sit and have a four-hour coffee. We know that. It's not, so it's not all bad, okay? I think it's a great tool for the gospel. I really do. But can we just talk about it for a minute? Can we talk about the pictures we post on Facebook and Instagram? Can we talk, can we talk specifically about selfies? First of all, just a matter of technique, if you have more than one chin, take your selfies from up here. That's all I'm saying. I learned this a long time ago. Camera adds, what, 10 or 100 pounds. We all know that posting pictures of ourselves on social media, let's say Facebook, because I know that's where a lot of us live, because we're not as cool as these people right over here. And you're like, Facebook is... So 2009, sometimes, sometimes those, our posts on social media are essentially a way to get people, we're asking people to compliment us, yes? It's like screaming, I'm feeling a little down today and insecure, would someone just tell me that I'm awesome? It's true. Sometimes it's essentially a way to brag about doing something cool or doing something that someone else hasn't had a chance to do. Maybe your, if you're honest, your social media experience on Facebook and Instagram, for instance, just leads to envy and leads to jealousy because you can't celebrate someone else's success or someone else's experiences because there's always somebody cooler. There's always somebody with more. There's always somebody with this or with that or the other that you've wanted to have. There's always somebody that, you know, got to go to that place that you've always wanted to go to. So let's just be honest. Most of Facebook and Instagram is either intentionally or unintentionally creating an image, the image that we want to project to the world, and many times that image is a lie. It's not who we actually are. It's not how we actually live. It's often who we want people to think we are and who we want to actually be. I pick on social media because... Like I said, it's low-hanging fruit. It's so easy, but it, it's a big part of a lot of our lives. And don't sit there all pious, because I know who you are. I'm on social media, too. I see. I stalked you. I did research this week. <laughs> and maybe you're not on social media at all. See what you're missing? And you think, hey, before you get on your high horse, you're not off the hook either, uh, because we all fall into this trap. It's just that it's the trap of image management. We all fall into it. For some people, it's, it's easier to we manage it on social media. For other people, it's um, those things that shine a light on the, the stuff in our lives that we, that we think will impress or win the approval of people. Sometimes it's good things. 
This is where it's really tricky, because like, I'm all for higher education. I think that's great. This is the time of year to brag about our kids and to brag about ourselves. I think it's a, I think it's a good thing, but it also can become a status symbol. For some people, it's the car you drive, or the cars you drive, or the car you're driving this year. That's why I don't wave to you, because I don't know what car you're driving. Some people, it's the clothes you wear. Make sure the brand name shows. I was in a store yesterday, and every piece of clothing had a brand name on it where it was visible. It was like a walking billboard, and you pay money for that. Blows my mind. Um. <laughs> oh, man. It's a type of phone in your hand. It's the latest vacation destination. It's our tendency to live vicariously through our kids and always touting their accomplishments in sports and academics and the arts and whatever. Whatever it is, there's this one-upmanship. It's like, I see your cool story about hiking in some exotic location and almost dying. I see that and I raise you my Caribbean beach vacation. Right? You know what I'm talking about. You get sucked into it all the time. It's like one person's great story is just drowned out because you have to one-up them. My point is, it's a weird place to end this message, but we are obsessed with image. We are obsessed, I would argue, with looking good over being good. I'm not even talking about doing good. I'm talking about being good. That heart condition. We are more obsessed with applause and accolades and acceptance and approval from people rather than attention and approval from our Heavenly Father. And that's exhausting. Am I right? We end up living with our emotional state just rising or falling based on what other people are or aren't saying about us. I mean, God forbid I post that selfie and no one likes it. What do I do with that? Go right back to post another one. Study your activity. We end up living, living into this stereotype from our culture where we've got to dress a certain way and we've got to think a certain way and we've got to vote a certain way and we've got to act a certain way rather than leaning into our identity and our calling from God. We end up living under the tyranny of the approval or disapproval of other people. Back up to say that again. We end up living under the tyranny of the approval or disapproval of other people, which is suffocating. So if we find ourselves living under the tyranny of the approval of others, how do we break free from that? How do we break free from living to look good rather than simply for the reward and the pleasure of our Heavenly Father? I want to address that, give you one real practical thing to do over the next few days. And while I do that, I'm going to ask the band and worship team to come. And uh, so and this, I know this is risky because there's movement and you're going to want to watch them. But man, this is, the, this is where I've been driving to. So let's just hang with me here. Because what they're going to do is they're going to get out of their seats, walk to the stage, pick up their instruments, maybe tune them, stand there, wait for me to finish. So now you know what's going to happen. Let me uh, wrap this up. Here's one, just one thing. I, I love this about Jesus, that he is always... He's always giving us something to do with what he says. And often it's, a, it's an incremental thing. It's a creative step towards a, that might take a little practice. So 
for him in this teaching, and I think it's very uh, simple, if this is where you're at and you want freedom, if you've spent time in your life, maybe recently, living under the tyranny of living for the approval of other people, here's what you do. And this, by the way, is an invitation. It's not even a command. It's not even a command. It's just Jesus saying, if you want this kind of freedom, this is an invitation. Here's what you do. You don't have to. But if you want to know freedom, then I'd say, I think the answer to that is always just go do something Jesus would do. Treat someone as Jesus would treat them. Give someone the kind of attention that Jesus would give them. Give them your undivided attention. Look them in the eye. Listen to them. Keep your mouth closed and listen to them. And when you're done listening, listen some more. Value them that much. And I would just say, put someone else's thing ahead of your thing. Make their voice more important than your voice. And even let them have the final word. Let them win the argument. You don't have to win every argument. You don't always have to make your point. Let them have their moment. I know this is a bit ambiguous, but um, <laughs> let's go do some good works, right? And let's do it with the right heart posture. Let's do it with an eye towards the pleasure of our Heavenly Father. Here's something. Whatever we choose to do or whatever opportunities are given to us to act on this week, do it in secret. Don't put it on Facebook. Don't tell anyone about it. Don't come back next week and tell me about it. It defeats the purpose. Just do it. Do it in secret. And when you do, pause for a moment and imagine your heavenly father. Imagine his face. Imagine the smile on his face. The pleasure that you're bringing to your heavenly father. And you're not earning his love. You already have his love. You're acting out of that. So imagine his smile over your life and let that be enough. You will begin to feel the suffocating weight of bondage and imprisonment to what other people think. You'll just feel it start to fall off your shoulders as you get to experience freedom in the kingdom of God and as God intended in his relationship with you. Let's stand together and sing.